listen, today's Palm Sunday, as I'm sure you probably knew. Thank you for joining us today. I want to tell you, in December 1903, after many attempts at flight, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, were successful in getting their flying machine, back then they didn't call it an airplane, off the ground and into the air at Kitty Hawk. Thrilled over their accomplishment, as you can imagine, they ran straight to the nearest telegraph place. They telegraphed a message to their sister Catherine that said, we have actually flown 120 feet. We will be home for Christmas. I guess Kitty Hawk was 120 feet from their house. No, I'm just kidding. Catherine hurried to the editor of a local newspaper. This was big news. She showed him the message. The editor of the newspaper glanced at the message very quickly and replied to her, how nice the boys will be home for Christmas. The fact of the matter is he totally missed the big news. For the first time in human history, man had flown. And this man had missed it. Now I'm sure as a good sister, she probably said, no, 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 buddy, look a little closer. And then it was published. But the fact of the matter is airplanes don't amaze us anymore, do they? Yes, some of us they do. Airplanes don't amaze us for most of us. Uh, because they're so commonplace. We, 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 if you've ever flown before, it's very, it's very straightforward. It's very simple, right? You just go there, you show up, you give them your baggage, you get on the plane, they take off, they land. Uh, I had a pilot once tell me any landing you can walk away from is a good one. I said, well, I, I beg to differ a little. But the fact of the matter is, the reason I bring this up is because today's Palm Sunday. For many of you, you've probably been in church before on Palm Sunday. For many of us, You've heard this message before. For many of us, this is just one more time of hearing the same story. And so I don't know if you know this, I don't know if other preachers deal with this, but sometimes I struggle with trying to preach something old in a new way. Sometimes that's hard for me. But what I hope, and what I said before, is although this is maybe something that seems old hat to you, it's my prayer this morning, and it's been my prayer this week, that you might hear this in a new way. That this isn't just Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, but rather this is Jesus' triumphant entry into your hearts. Whether you've heard it before or not, it is my prayer that at the end of this message today, or even maybe before you hear this message today, you have a heart of praise and you could see yourself as one of those men and women on the side of the road cheering on Jesus as he enters in. So, of course, uh, we're going to be in... Luke this morning, Luke 19, 28 through 48. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn there. And if you uh, already have, then please join with me in prayer. God, our Father, we come to you knowing that for so many of us, this story is one that we've heard many times. But we do ask that you would give us a freshness today. We ask that we might hear it anew. That you, with your Holy Spirit, would, would not allow us to have our minds focused on other things, things with the family or things with work, the other distractions of life, but rather instead that you would hone us and prepare us for today. Prepare us for your message. Prepare us for your truth. Prepare us that as we hear this story of Jesus entering in and being heralded as king, that we too might herald him as king this morning. Help us, we pray. It's in your son's name we ask this, amen. So this is how the week goes. A lot of people refer to this as Holy Week. 
okay? This is how it works. Today is the triumphal entry, uh, Sunday. Monday is the cleansing of the temple. Uh, Tuesday is this controversies with the other Jewish leaders. Wednesday is apparently a day of rest. Thursday is the preparation for the Passover. Friday is the trial and crucifixion, otherwise known as Good Friday. Saturday, Jesus rests in the tomb, and then Sunday, he's raised from the dead. And that, my friend, is what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. But for this, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, as he is on his way in there, there's some things that took place behind the scenes, that there's some things that took place beforehand and during that didn't just happen. What I mean by this is a time of preparation. My guess is, is that you all prepared before you came here this morning. Probably not many of you just decided to roll out of bed, get in the car, and come out. We prepared ourselves. You prepare yourself before you go to work. You prepare yourself before you go to school. You prepare dinner before it's eaten, hopefully. And so there's a time of preparation. So just like that, that's the first thing I want to talk about that we see here in the text, is a time of preparation. Now, specifically, I want to look at verses 28 through 36 of chapter 19. You can turn there in your Bible. I want to focus on this one in verse 30 where it says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one else has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. You see, before this, there was a lot of things that happened. Before this, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Many of the people that are following Jesus now have just witnessed that miracle. And it seems to me that in the text, based on all of this, this person who this colt and this donkey were taken from, that this was prepared beforehand as well. It seems that they must have known the Lord. I say that because of things that it says, well, if if anyone asks you why, you just tell them the Lord needs it and they're going to let you go. But not only was that prepared beforehand, in, in my opinion, Christ was prepared beforehand. If you remember, his whole ministry was leading up to this. He's told his disciples time and time again that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified. In fact, he even has to rebuke one of them. He says, no, this is not going to happen. He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, right? He's been praying about this. We're going to see even more preparation in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I believe that this moment, this big moment of Palm Sunday, this moment that you are here today, was a day, has had days of preparation. What brought you here today? Don't just say you're Honda Civic, right? I mean, what brought you here today? Because there's a reason for every single one of you to be in this building right now or to be watching online right now. Or, by the way, here's the cool thing about it. Years from now or days from now when somebody else listens to this and it's not live, when they hear it on a podcast or when they stumble across it and they watch it, there's a reason for them to be in this room with us right now. So he says, go into the village and you're entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. You know, people in that day believed of predestination. They believed in, I'll use the term fate, but that's not really what I mean. I mean God's sovereign plan over everything. In John 9, 22, people would ask these things. They would say, who sinned, this man or his father, Right? Why is this man receiving this? You know, there's a story before this in John 9, 22, 
that deals with this. And, and another reason I think this had to be prepared beforehand is because people were afraid of the religious leaders of their day. People knew during that time period that if you said you were part of Jesus' followers, you would be excommunicated from the Jewish synagogues. So there was already growing a stigma around Jesus. The lines were already being drawn. In John 9, 22, uh, people were scared of this. They said his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. This is a time where somebody was healed. They came to the parents of the man who was healed, and they asked him how this was taking place. And they threw their son under the bus. They, they basically said, ask him. He's old enough to answer for himself. Don't bother asking us. We want nothing to do with this whole thing. We want to be responsible for nothing. Ask this man. And they did this because they feared the Jews. They feared the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And it says in the text here, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This was the chief spot for them. Of all their hopes and their dreams, this is where God resided. And so I believe that this person was a disciple of Jesus who had prepared beforehand. Not only that, but this cult was prepared beforehand. This donkey was born for this purpose. This donkey's sole purpose in being born was to allow Jesus to enter in. Now we think of donkeys as beasts of burden, and I guess we can, but back then donkeys were a sign of royalty. There's two different sections in Kings, both along the same lines, one in 1 Kings 1, and again in 44. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Now this is David, of course, talking about his son Solomon as he's going to take over the kingship. And again, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherishites, and the Pelethites, and they had made him ride on the king's mule. So now we are seeing that not only is the donkey, of course, in our eyes, a beast of burden or maybe a dumb animal, and that's why we call our husbands that, right? but rather he is a sign of royalty. And I think sometimes we also forget that this same ride happened before. That we're talking about right now. King David rode a donkey into Jerusalem during the same ride, the same path. And so lastly, for this preparation, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, this colt, This colt was born for this purpose, and we see that Christ is sovereign over all creation in his very riding of it. Now, I've never broke a a wild stallion, but I can imagine it's a painful process. I've seen it. Um, I've seen people ride broncos and bulls and stuff every year at the, the, no, not every year. There was Western Days that happened for a while. I was confusing that with the Allegan Fair. If you've ever been at Western Days, you've seen these these bull riders ride these, these bulls. I would assume a donkey is similar to that in that they don't want somebody to ride it if they're not already broke. And this shows that God, that Jesus, is the Christ over all creation, that he rides this colt in. All of this gets to me to this point. He says, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied. It's already prepared. Untie it and bring it here. So my question to you is, are you truly preparing the way for the Lord? Are you just here sitting because it's Sunday and that's what we do on Sunday? Or are you really prepared for the Lord's return? Because the next time Jesus returns, he's not coming on a donkey. He's not having people lay coats and 
palms in front of him. He's coming on a white stallion, and he's coming to reign supreme over all of the universe. And I think sometimes we forget. We just get caught up in the daily things, and we forget to actually prepare. Ladies, would you ever in your wildest dreams not buy a dress, not do your hair, not do your makeup on your wedding day? Would you just get up out of bed with the sleep boogers in your eye, your breath all a funk, and walk down the aisle with bedhead? And my, my answer would be, of course not. It's, we laugh about it because it's foolishness. And yet, as the very bride of Christ, do we not, at times, if you're honest with yourself, lack in the preparation of our bridal ceremony when he will come to bring us to be with him for all of eternity? Are you ready for that? If he came today, would you be prepared? The next thing that happens right after preparation, of course, just like any wedding, just like anything, is the celebration. I was just at a birthday party recently. We had two birthday parties on Saturday. We had one for friends and another for family. And if you were here for that, you would have seen what they did to prepare for the birthday party. There were decorations everywhere. That was all in preparation. All of it, though, culminated in the event itself, right? The celebration. The preparation wouldn't have mattered if there wouldn't be a celebration. So now, as we look at 37 through 40 in your Bible, I would like to focus with you on verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, this celebration was unlike any other celebration, partly because the person of interest, I don't know, the captain, the one who was all about, that's what I'm saying, was Christ. He had never allowed this before. This is his time of celebration on this earth as he's coming into Jerusalem. I believe he does this for several reasons, two of which I really want to focus on, which are this. One, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, literally. We see this in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9. We see this in Psalm 118. Perhaps you realize that as we read it this morning. But in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But yeah, your friend's right. The Bible's probably not true, right? Like, how could Zechariah know this? Hundreds of years ahead of time, and then Jesus fulfills it, down to the very nature of it being a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is literally fulfilling prophecy, and do you know why? Because he's the Christ. This is the celebration, this is the culmination. This is why Jesus answers the disciples of John, or these other people, how come your disciples don't fast? And he's like, how can you fast at the bachelor party, right? How can you fast at the wedding reception? How can you fast during Thanksgiving, right? How can you do that? When when, when we're in the middle of the celebration, how can you do that? And so Jesus is in the midst of this celebration pointing us to the real fulfilling of prophecy that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The second reason we have this celebration is not just to point us to Christ, but also to force the hand of the religious leaders. A celebration for a lot of these things that we've been talking about, a marriage or a birthday, requires a truth. Let me explain that to you. For me to celebrate a birthday means that somebody must have been born. 
and that they are continuing to live, generally. To celebrate a marriage means a covenantal union is taking place. And therefore, we are celebrating it because it is a real union under God. And so he is forcing the religious leaders to recognize that he is fulfilling prophecy and that he is the Christ. And so with that, they are going to be furious. We saw that in the cartoon, right? They were like, hey, tell these people to be quiet. And he's like, no, if I do that, even the stones are going to cry out. We can't stop the celebration, right? Can't stop. Won't stop. I don't Sorry. I know. Y'all don't listen to that kind of pagan music, I'm sure, right? But he was seeking to force their action. See, here's the deal. Before, they were seeking to arrest him, John 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a head on him because his hour had not yet come. Another uh, time in Scripture where he's, he's ministering to people and he's preaching the good news, and they, and they corner him on the edge of a cliff. Do you remember this story? They corner him on the edge of the cliff as to throw him off, and it says that he passed through the crowd. How does that happen? Have you guys ever been to one of those, time, one of those crazy things where they grease up a pig? and then they try to catch that greased pig. If you have not experienced this, next time there's one in town or you hear about one, just go. It's just fun, right? Catching a greased pig. I once heard a guy, about a guy who did this in his high school. They greased up a pig and then let it through the high school. I, here's my, th- I'm sorry. I don't know how, my point with that is I don't know how Jesus got through the crowd, okay? And how nobody grabbed him. That's my whole point for the greased pig thing. Stupid reference, I'm sorry. It got away from me for a minute. The fact of the matter is he's forcing their action on the religious leaders. He is, by definition, coming through and saying, yes, I'm the Christ. Yes, I am the King. Yes, I am the Lord. And there's nothing you guys can do to stop it, so what are you going to do? Now, he doesn't say this, but in essence, the people say this for him, right? And it is right after this, Matthew 26, 14 through 16, that Judas Iscariot would then go to these chief priests and give them exactly what they desired. He was going to betray them for some money in his pocket so that they might have the opportunity that they so longed for. They were forcing, Jesus was forcing their hands to act. Think of what they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. He will bring peace in heaven and on earth. Glory to him in the highest. These religious leaders desire the glory. These religious leaders were the kings right now because there was no king. So they were the authority. These were the ones who were going to lose out. And we know that it was a celebration because if these people would have stopped, Jesus says, even the stones would cry out. So the second, I guess, point that I'm getting at, is not only is there a preparation asking if you're prepared for that, but then secondly, there's a celebration. So prepare for that. I think sometimes as Christians, we're lied to by the world and we buy into it that Christianity is like boring or lame. That's, a, that's what I thought. Before I was a Christian, I thought, I thought Christians were lame. And I thought they were boring. And I will never forget, this is part of my testimony, if I've told you, I'm going to tell you again right now, but here's the thing. I will never forget the day that I went to my first party, and I use air quotes because for me, a party meant somebody was passing out at some point, right, and would wake up the next day. 
and in the meantime, we'd draw on their face. You know how it was, right? But here's the thing. I went to my first Christian party, and there was no booze. There was no drugs. And it was amazing. I had no frame of reference for that. And I think sometimes we buy into this this lie that the world says that Christianity is just boring, stick-in-the-mud people. And the fact of the matter is, not that I like this, not that I like this uh, statement or this individual, but the fact of the matter is God has designed it so that we can have our best life now, but also, more importantly, the celebration to come, that we're preparing for the celebration to come. And so I hope and I pray And here's what I'm getting at with this. I hope and I pray that your walk with Christ is not one of drudgery, is is not one of boredom, is not one of religious duty, but rather that you are ready for the marriage feast, the eternity with Christ, the great glorious time in the future to come. The rest assured, my friends, there is a celebration coming. And so let that be your hope and your joy and your peace as we deal with a world that seems to be falling apart all around us. To remind yourself, this is not my home, this is not the end, and it gets way, way better. But the other part of that, the unfortunate part of that, is while this celebration of Jesus entering in, while that is going on, there's also lament. And unfortunately, That's what I have to tell you this morning as well. That as Jesus is entering into his kingdom, as as he's showing everyone that he's the Christ here on earth, as he's proving this and they're giving him accolades, there's also lament. Now, this is 41 through 44, and you can look over that, but what I really want to focus with you, again, is 42. Jesus, as he comes in, he's weeping over Israel. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So here's this contrast. The crowd is rejoicing, and Jesus is weeping. Now, we've seen in Scripture before that um, Jesus has wept before. In fact, if you would like to memorize verses of your Bible, you can start with that one. It's John eleven thirty five, and it's very simply, Jesus wept. There you go. You can memorize that. It's your very first Scripture memory. Now you're on a roll. Continue from there. But Jesus wept over Lazarus, and in that term, it means that he cried. He was, he was grieving over his friend. And this is, this is a guy, Jesus, who, who knows that Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead. And so he sanctifies for us our worldly grief, even over fallen brothers and sisters. It's okay to mourn the loss of people. He tells us, though, just don't mourn as one without hope. And so Jesus is, is mourning the death of his friend Lazarus, but here it's a different kind of word for weep. This is the kind of mourning, out loud, moaning type of blubbering kind of cry. And so Jesus is loudly weeping over Jerusalem and over the people that are walking right alongside him. Think of it in your mind. There's people in front of him. You saw him on the video, right? And then there's people on the sides. There's people behind him joining in the accolades. People are laying down their coats on the ground. People are cutting palm branches and laying those down. Out of all this, Jesus ought to be the happiest guy on the planet. It's like Super Bowl, right, where they dump the Gatorade on the guy or, or, or uh, with some kind of end of 
quarter. I'm not a basketball guy. Shot or whatever. I don't know. So they hoist him up on his. It's like Rudy, I guess, what I'm saying. It's Rudy, right? He ought to be really enjoying this, and instead he's, he's weeping. And I think Jesus is weeping over this because he is surveying the things around him. See, Jesus is looking back at the wasted opportunities. Not from him, but for the people who would have followed him. The people who are too interested in fish and loaves than they were in eternity. The people who cared more about sight and cleanliness and lameness than they did about eternity. And so I think part of why Jesus is lamenting is he's looking back. He's looking back at all the people who would have entered in had they believed. But I also think Jesus is is weeping because he's looking around him. He's looking around him at the spiritual ignorance and the religiosity that is happening. He knows that these are good Jews who are here. The reason they're here is to celebrate the Passover. The reason they're here is to practice religion. And they're missing the very fact that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Shekinah glory of God is entering into Jerusalem. The one who they have been waiting for. And the the irony is, by their own mouths, they're proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in six days or five days or whatever it was that I said here, they're going to say, crucify him, crucify him. And so he's looking around at the spiritual ignorance. He's looking around at all these people who are pilgrims, but they're also still pagans. He's also weeping because he's looking forward. He's looking forward at the judgment that is going to happen to this nation. You can see it in there if you, if you look at 41 through 44 as he, as he talks about that. He says that there will be... So Jesus prophesies over Jerusalem, and he tells them that there will be judgment. The Romans are going to come in. They're going to tear this down. In 70 AD, this is fulfilled. The temple is torn down. And it's still torn down, by the way. I'm reminded of Jonah. Jonah looked at Nineveh and hoped that it would be destroyed. While Jesus looks back at Jerusalem and weeps because he knows that it's already destroyed itself. That the hardness of their heart for desiring their own things, their own king in their own way, their religion over relationship, they will be destroyed. And the thing about it is this is the city, Jerusalem. The city of peace. God's chosen people. This is the place where his temple resides. And they miss it. It's literally right there in front of them. Some of these people, in my mind, as I, as I picture this, some of these people who are on the sidelines as this donkey and this colt go by are actually even reaching out and patting the colt on the, on the back end or, or stroking its mane or, or tugging at Jesus as he's walking past. And so what could have been a time of grace and peace is a prophesied time of destruction. And so the fact of the matter is, and the unfortunate thing that I have to tell you this morning is, if you are not prepared and looking forward to the celebration, unfortunately, there will be a time of lament. At the same time as some will stand in awe before the Lord, there will be others that will fall on their faces in fear, for they know that judgment is at hand. 
So lastly, Jesus goes in and there is a confrontation. This is 1945 through 48. I want to focus with you on verse 46. He says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus is hanging out at a town, Bethany. He curses a fig tree there because it's not bearing fruit. And then he goes to the temple, and he, in essence, curses the temple because it also is not bearing fruit. Think about what this was. This was a magnificent building covered in gold. You would be able to see it from miles away as the sun hits it and is reflected out into your eyes. It would be a sight of absolute glory. If you've ever read the Old Testament, and I I hope that you do. So a lot of us, side trail. This is free, okay? So if you go to the Old Testament and you're wondering, like, hey, why am I reading about all these carvings that they're making up of the temple and stuff like that? It's so you can understand its beauty. So read the dry parts of Scripture where they talk about the... uh, the pomegranates and the bells and all the stuff that you think is stupid because here's what it does. It forces you to understand how glorious God is and how, how much attention to detail he gives. And, and then use that to prepare your heart for the celebration because I don't know how long it took for them to uh, build the temple. But Jesus has been preparing a room for you since he left. So it's going to be pretty sweet, okay? So, so that's the free, but back to this. So it, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. Jesus lodges there. He curses the fig tree. He goes in to then, in effect, curse them because you have this shining beacon on a hill. The Jews who are supposed to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Does it sound familiar, Christian? And what they've done is they've neglected their duties and these Gentiles who could be saved by this one true living God. Instead, they're charging them absorbent prices so that they can uh, basically launder money. He says here, you've made it a den of robbers. Listen, I want to tell you this. Campbell Morgan reminds us that a den of thieves, or this den of robbers, is a place where thieves would actually run and hide after they have committed their wicked deeds. This is their safe house. The religious leaders were using the services of the Holy Temple to cover up their sins. So this is supposed to be a place where people are supposed to come to interact with God. And instead, it's dead religion. Instead, it's legalism. Instead, it's a standard that these men aren't even holding themselves. Instead, it's hypocrisy and a lack of love. And so before we condemn them too harshly, I want to ask you the question, have you ever gone to church or participated in religious worship just to give other people the impression that you are a good person? Because if you have, then you're really no better than these who have been hiding out at the temple as a den of robbers. And so Jesus goes and he confronts them. And so the fact of the matter is, is that there is preparation, and hopefully that preparation is for celebration. Because there's celebration and lament, and Jesus will not be fooled. We cannot produce false fruits. You know, maybe you've went to your grandma's house, and she has that fruit bowl that's there permanently. And you've got those rubber grapes, Right? You would not eat that because it would kill you. Jesus is not fooled by rubber grapes. And so that brings me to my final point, a proclamation. You probably know the proclamation by now, but I want to focus you on Luke 19.38 as we go back. The proclamation is this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The proclamation that I want to make to you today is no different than what they are making centuries ago. It is no different than that which was written in the Psalms. 
So in the back, they're going to click through this. Yeah, you. This is what it says. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Didn't Jesus refer to himself as the door which you could enter in? This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How much of Psalm 118 did you know that you knew but you didn't know where it was? Save us, we pray, O Lord. This is what they said. And this is the proclamation I have for you. The only way of salvation is through Christ Jesus. It is not through your works. He is not fooled by fake fruit. We must prepare because there is a celebration coming as well as a time of lament. We ought not to invite Jesus to come and confront us and tell us, us among all, chief among sinners, right? Paul says this too. If you are saved, you are called to ministry. Maybe not this kind of ministry, right? But you're called to your own mission field. You're called to your own homes. You're called like the demoniac from weeks before to just live out Christ in the everyday mundane. And that's your mission field. Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Didn't Jesus also say that? Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You know what that means? That means let this sacrifice be before you forever. Tie it there. Let it never leave. I think Hebrews talks about Jesus being the anchor of our soul that goes beyond the curtain, that basically affixes us as a sacrifice tied to the horns of the altar by which we are never moved. It says, the Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. I'm sorry, you are, you are, you are my God, verse 28. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So here's the culmination. Palm Sunday is proof that Jesus is king. Palm Sunday is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Palm Sunday is proof that Jesus is God. That was his message to them, and they missed it, so he wept. That is my message to you this morning, and my prayer is, is that this would not be just the triumphal entry where Jesus would enter into Jerusalem, but rather this would be the triumphal entry where Jesus would enter into your hearts. And if he already dwells there, that you would go about the business of like that man who others said, who is this? And he said, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the King. Do not focus on mere religion and lose sight of Jesus. Do not let the story of the good news become old news. Let the same Jesus who is triumphant there be triumphant in your heart. I started this by talking to you about Wilbur and Orville Wright and about the man who missed the message. See, the fact of the matter is, just like those on the road, it's possible to be so close, so close to religion and miss Jesus. And so I want to share with you this. this, To end, I want to share this with you. 
Some of you I know have been wounded by churches. Some of you have been wounded by pastors. Some of you have been wounded by friends who say that they're Christians. They're not Jesus. None of them are Jesus. Jesus never fails. Jesus never leaves. Jesus never disappoints. Jesus is who we follow, not mere man. Don't miss, don't miss Jesus for those who get in the way. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for Palm Sunday. It is to you that we lift our palms out, palms that are open and that are empty. For we know that we have nothing to bring, that you own it all. Palms that are open and empty because we know that we need you to lift us up, to fill us, to give us strength. So as little children come to their mothers, so God, we come to you with open, upraised palms. Not just palm branches, but the palms of our very being. God, we praise you and we thank you that you are triumphant. We thank you that we as the church are experiencing this interesting time of the already, not yet, that you are already sitting on your throne, and yet now all we need do would be to prepare for your final triumphant entry. So Lord, we thank you and we ask that you would help us to not miss you because of the crowds, to not miss you because of religion, to not miss you because of things that we would focus on you. For you're worthy. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.